I'm really excited to bring you the upcoming interview with a very special guest. You'll hear her discussing all the great and courageous work that she is currently engaged in. And if you feel inspired to help her with these efforts, please consider making a donation earmarked for her projects. Or feel free to give a general donation that will support the wider movement in Myanmar. Our ongoing support is so helpful and appreciated by the Burmese people during these dark days. Simply go to insightmyanmar.org slash donation to contribute today. Or stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear more options. Now, let's hear from that guest herself. Delighted to be checking in with Theory. Theory, thanks so much for joining us here at Insight Myanmar Podcast. Thank you for inviting me for this podcast. And yeah, I'm happy to share. Yeah, so we have so much to talk about in terms of what you're doing, what you're observing, what your roles are there. But before we get into that, I just found out that we actually have a relationship going back for quite a few years. And I'm. I was quite delighted to hear about that. Why don't you share a bit about how we first met and where our connection goes back to? So, like, it was it was ten years ago. It was in two thousand seven or eight. I went to the American Center to study English, and I barely speak English. And I just finished my high school, and and so I went there, and there was a free class for the English learner, and it was also an accident because I asked the lady at the at the uh, library if I want to attend the English class and she put me into that class that you organize and so I was one of the students there the teacher are the TOT trainers that you train and then they will have in a classroom with the Burmese uh, Burmese learner so I was one of the one of the students there 
in back in 2008. Yeah, and that's just so cool because you're going back to my first couple months in the country. And to clarify for listeners what that was, that was actually a course where I was training Burmese English teachers how to teach English. This actually wasn't TOT. TOT was a course after that, which was the training of trainers. And for this course, I was working with about a dozen Burmese English teachers, and I would train them in English teaching methodology. And then they would go on in the afternoon. So in the morning, we'd do like, you know, English, uh, different English teaching techniques and such. And then in the afternoons, they would actually try those techniques on teaching English language students at the American Center. And so what Theory has told me is she was one of those students. I didn't actually interact directly with those students. I was interacting more with the teachers and then observing them and taking notes. And we were going back and talking. And so it's just so incredibly cool to hear that one of those young students that was in those classes at the back trying to learn basic English is I am now having this fluent conversation with, and we're going to be doing more than just practicing our English. We're going to be getting into a lot of serious and heavy topics, but it all goes back to those uh, English 101 classes at the American Center. Yeah, and also it was interesting. Like I, I think I listened to you explaining to the course at the SAC, which is a... a at the American, the American Center Library, the upper floor, and I barely understand what you said because mm-hmm. I thought you speak too fast, and I didn't understand I, I at all. Like I think I only understand ten percent of what you said that time. Right, I probably did speak too fast. I probably still speak too fast, but here I'm at a level that you're able to understand me now. And you know that's just so interesting because when I taught that course. My predecessor who was there was also bringing these teacher training courses to Burmese English teachers. And she had warned me before going in that the usual types of courses that we were running in other parts of the world, that the the level of those courses, we couldn't run here because the students couldn't, by student, I don't mean you actually, I mean the teachers that were in the course, that they uh, they they wouldn't be able to handle that workload and that that level of uh, activity that we were expecting, which I really didn't buy into. And I really felt that I wanted to run that course at the same standards and curriculum that we did anywhere else and just do whatever I could to bring those teachers to meet those standards and have faith that they could do them if we scaffolded it and set it the right way. And they very much did. And I, I've never really forgotten that experience because to me, it's always spoken to seeing other foreigners come into the country and have certain kind of biases or discriminations or judgments about what it is they think people there can or can't do. When, for, through my experience, I really feel the way to go about it is to have the same level of standards you have anywhere else, but the methods in getting there, you have to adjust based on what you're seeing of your participants and your students in terms of what their needs are and how to help them get to those levels. And that course definitely proved it. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, um, that was the beginning of my journey itself. And I, you can see like the, the impact, <laughs> the course has an impact on the student like me that I am here today. I speak English fluently and I already got the master's in, in the States. And yeah, I, I work in the big organizations and all this thing. So there is definitely an impact and the, and, and, and this is the effort of that teacher, the Burmese teacher who, um, who train us there 
And it was the beginning of my journey and everything, like learning English and also other activities uh, those days, because those days things were not open up and things were quite difficult to um, to to get like we have very limited resources but from there like the before the country opened up and then we have a country open up in a little bit a little bit in between and now we're going back to the close society so that in the in 10 years the change has been like up and downs and that's interesting to witness the, the the you know 10 years experience yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And this is just kind of a live on-air catch-up between you and I of like a decade plus. And it also fits into this podcast interview. So as we catch up, why don't you let me know what you went on to do after that course? Um, what that, from that very beginning course, what it kind of started and inspired you in you and then where you went on from that and how you've ended up where you are now since February 2021 and what you've been doing. So I know that's a mouthful, so give us uh, what it is you want to share. Um, so after the course, I they selected the two people to, uh, I, I don't know how many people, but they give some people some scholarship to attend at the Amer- at the English class, the official English class at, at the American Center, which you usually pay around hundred dollars something, which is beyond my beyond my budget. And so they give a you get that that course give us the scholarship. They in our class they selected two people, and somehow I I got that scholarship to attend at the level class at the American Center because at that time American Center has the English classes and also the elective classes so for the for so I got taken I got a scholarship to attend that um, the level level class in the and I wasn't I wasn't chosen at the beginning it was somebody else and and somehow I got it I don't even remember I don't even know and I don't remember how I got it but anyway, so we have to take the entrance exam, and then the Naga cyclone happened, and they des- we were not sure if we we're gonna get the scholarship. But then I ended up getting it because I I passed the um, I passed the uh, the entrance entrance with the quite I think quite a I think I met the threshold, so I could attend at the American Center, and then. I want to improve my English speaking, so I went to the student club and the, um, uh, the and and did some public speaking trainings, and I started speaking English there. And then I also that time I wanted to study abroad. I wanted to study in in Singapore, but I want I my parents wouldn't afford, so I I need to apply for the scholarship. So I started working at the local NGO. And that's helped the HIV woman. So I work with her, and and then I and then it was around the time of the in two thousand nine two thousand ten. It was around the time that the country is talking about the moving to the uh, talking about the transition and the elections coming up, and we have to lend the election trainings, and then we have elections in twenty ten. And in 2000, in 2010, even though the country opened up, we were not quite sure, even though we have an election, we were not quite sure if it is true or not. So there were very few people in the country who understand politics a little bit. And the, and the, 
and who speak English. So they're like there, there are very few people with two skill set, and I happen to be the one. Like one, I work with the youth organizations, and then I I talk to the international media when they come to the country because I I speak English and I understand a little bit about politics. So、uh, later, one journalist asked me if I want to be a translator for him, and so I became a translator for him. And later, I got a, I became a fixer. I was hired as a fixer because those days there are very few people who would work with the international media because you can be arrested or you can be targeted by the authority if you work with the media and it. And it was a really great situation that time, so I happened to be one of the fixer there. And then in in two thousand four, I started working for working with the New York Times, and later I worked with the Human Rights Watch and and the other human rights organizations until I studied abroad in two thousand seventeen. And then I got I got Fulbright in two thousand seventeen, and I I did my masters in human rights in in the states, and then I got back in two thousand nineteen, and twenty 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 is it's a wasted time, and we mostly stay at home, even though I've been doing some research work, and then twenty twenty one we are now in in the coup, and I'm I'm now working for. Again, for the New York Times. Thank you, thank you. That's a really succinct summary for covering a lot of years there, and I do remember those scholarships that we gave out at the very end, where there were a couple available, and the Burmese teachers got together, the English teachers, and decided who to give them to. And it sounds like you were the runner-up, and I smiled at that because so much of my Life has turned out by me being the runner-up to something that I wasn't quite able to get, and then the person in front of me not able to do it for whatever reason, and me stepping into that role. And so, so much of my own life has gone that way as well. So, yeah, you, you've just been so incredibly busy, and you've done so much in this time, and that's that's just wonderful. And I'm just I'm really looking forward to. Exploring more about where your journey has taken you, and more importantly, how that journey has set you up for what you've been doing these last couple months. And to go into that, it sounds like there's been two fields that you've really been focused on. One has been being a fixer for journalists and being in journalism, and another has been looking at human rights and, and ethnic areas and such. So we can explore each of those one by one. So let's go first into fixer because you had kind of brought that up. A little bit. I've heard of the term fixer before, but I, it's always something that seems to、uh, lurk in the backgrounds that I've never quite known exactly what they do or how that works. So, why don't you tell us a bit about what you've done in the role of a fixer and what your your journalistic life has been like? Yeah, yeah.、Um, thanks for asking because fixer、um, is a term like people usually ask, like、uh, what is a fixer, and people don't really know. Um, so I, my definitions of fixer is the combination of、uh, a journalist, a translator, and and the and the tour guide, but local guide. It's not just tour, but you you have to you 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 do the、um, logistic work. So for example, like my work as a fixer, the work involved like I. I would help the journalists develop the story angle 
like when they comes into the country because they they new to the country or they may they may not be aware of every single things happening in the country. So they will come in with the set of idea that they want to do this and they want to do that and and so my job is to make it happen. So to make it happen involves that I suggest some um, story idea. What would be the uh, what would be the what is happening and what would be the story worth? So that I think that's the that's what the expertise of a fixer is as opposed to a translator because you need to understand a little bit about journalism. Well, not a little bit. Like I think actually you need to understand about journalism and what is newsworthy and what is not, and how to make it into how how to make a sim make a things into the newsworthy and so that kind of thing. And you have to find the sources. And once you get it, once you get the story idea developed, um, you have to know who would be the good person to talk to, uh, good sources to talk to in this. In this piece, and so we would suggest the people. I would suggest who would be the good people for this and for that, and and that, and and then I have to arrange meeting with those people and with the sources, and also finding the background information needed for a story to run. Because the international media, the way they work is more with the new story, so you have to develop it into a story. So, so I have to find the information that would be suited for this story, and also who would be the good person to talk to. The sources it can be on the record uh, for the quote or off the record for the information. So I arrange that kind of meetings, and one if that person that we interview doesn't speak English, so I, then I translate. I translate for them. And when I translate, it's not just translating the language; it's also translating the culture and the and the meaning be, behind um, be, the, what is going on in the in the situation. So, so it's it's more it's rather than the language itself, the translation. It's also reading the environment and reading the culture and reading the meanings of the the hidden meanings of what that person say. Culturally and the and the and in that setting, and so that kind of work involved, and if and also I do the logistic arrangement because the logist one since the foreign journalists come into the country, I arrange um, if I need to arrange I arrange the car and if I need to arrange the trap uh, internal travel ticket. Um, the air tickets or other other things, so I arrange that kind of logistic things and the permissions um, to access to certain areas, and hiring a local translator. If I move to other place where I don't speak the language, I need to hire another fixer, another translator, and so I arrange arrange that kind of uh, that that setting. I arrange a fixer or also arrange that payments and. And the itinerary of our trip, and yeah, all involved. That 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 is a that involved the logistic thing. The mainly working with the permission stuff because the dealing with the authorities in Myanmar is pretty um, tricky business, and it it takes really long time. And you never know if you're gonna get the permission permission to certain area or get the interview with the authority. Um, so so. Like um, 
So especially when you go to the conflict areas, you have it's difficult to get the permission, but it's your skill set and if your if your personality, if your personal um yeah, it, it's your skill and if your connection that will help you get that kind of get that kind of permission. So that's the work that I do and pretty much everything behind the scene for any story. A fixer is somebody who is behind the scene to make a story happen and to make a story publish or or either print or uh, the uh, the t- the television piece or the anything so or the radio any piece that international people listen or watch or read it's in about Myanmar we are behind the scenes okay so it sounds like you're really doing just about everything with the story I had no idea that fixers handled that many parts of it and had to wear that many hats and as you've said it's not just a question of doing something by the book but having to be it sounds like incredibly creative and dynamic and going into situations where there really are no rule books and you have to make your own way and because you're so involved in international media i'm really curious to know what is your view on how well they're accurately capturing your country and your people and your culture what are they getting well and what are they generally missing so about the accuracy and the and I would say facts and the and facts will are accurate because they they're very good at fact checkings and confirmations and everything. So we have to hold a pretty high standard in fact checkings and etc. But I think there's still the nuances in addressing the um, culture and the people of Myanmar. So. That's what I see. You're right. You're missing the richness of all the different kind of experience and culture that you can really have there. And therein goes the nuance where, and the nuance might seem like a small detail, but really I think that when you're missing the nuance, you might have all the facts right, but you don't necessarily have the tools to understand and interpret those facts. So I'm curious in your role in talking to so many different types of media, doing so many different types of stories, do you try to hit, hint at some of this nuance and greater context and uh, some of the simplicity that they're, they're trying to go down the road of making things more black and white and less realistic in terms of how things actually are? Do you try to inform them of that? And if so, how, does, how is that usually received? Um, yes, I, am, I'm, I try that part a lot because I'm... I'm a little bit stuck on in the way that I work and and I'm principal on on my own on my values and I treat people as the I don't treat people as a source like who talk to the media because they are people and they're human being and and they 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 are our friends and they are our you know they're people in the country and I can come across with them at some point so so with the the people I mean the people the local people that I talk to who we use as a uh, who we use their voices as the sources but for the international media most of the time I try to explain the complexities of it before jumping into the story because I usually if they're new to the country I explain to them in lunt of the of the situations and 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 then most of the time I would say I could resist and I 
push for it. Like if I'm not happy with, if I see the some things need to be fixed, I push for it. Like I was like, okay, not this and not that, and I don't want to. I don't. This is not. This this is not the black and white things. And I'm quite vocal on it also um, in the other. A panel or in my own writings, and I'm critical in the self-reflection of our own work, and and most of the time it was okay that I could present and I I was I could um, give a I I could share voice in a in the story and most people respected it, but also sometimes there some our voices are not my voices are not respected because there's a power dynamic between the between the fixers and the and and the international journalist and the editor, sometimes even if the journalist itself agree to it and understand, the editors in as well, like in New York or Singapore or whatever, they they may not understand. Um, so it's really um, it's really a tricky part that we play, and we can we could push for it, but at the same time, the power dynamic always stop. And, and just because we are local people and we're not even, it's, even though people treated us with respect, there's always a vacuum of, of power in the decision makings in how the story unfolds at the end of it. It doesn't matter what you thought. In the end, it's mostly for the Western audience or the, and right. so the, it changed into the language, either either print or anyway. So it changing the language of how they understand rather than the complexities. And there's also a limitation of the media because that the because media is so light that they cannot address on some nuances because they have a limited um, uh, numbers of words and the number of page that they could rent. So they cannot make a uh, like a re- they cannot make it like a research and explain the complexities into different things. So the way media works is more like to more to get the attention of what is going on, and then maybe other people can continue um, digging into more detail of it. But media is more like showing the spotlight, and then and then anyone who are interested in it can continue working. But um, but yeah, I most of the people that I work with are ethical uh, journalists, and they respect to the local people. But I also met the other people who are not really, who may be really good at their reporting, but not in terms of the process. I don't see the respect, and I see many disrespectful behavior of the behaviors and the attitudes of the of of the journalists to the local people and. So that's really sometimes I, if I see those people, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say anything. But I just I thought I I am skeptical of their report, whatever they say in their report, like how much they care about the people and everything. But as a person, I'm behind the scene. I saw how they treat the people that they talk to, or during the interview, or after the interview. That it's there's um I'm cynical of the, some journalism and. And even though they may be from the big media, and I'm skeptical of of how they report. So later these days, I only work with the people um, rather than the media itself. It doesn't matter how big they are, but I only work with the people that I feel that I can share my voice. 
Right, right. That's so interesting to hear. And it's so tragic also that when you have you talk about having firsthand knowledge with certain big name Western reporters that just by the way they're covering the story, you can see they lack a certain kind of respect or interest or engagement to get it right. And then, of course, that's the view that gets spread about your country and your people. And when as you're talking, it's it's just so funny how these things all come together because I can't help but reflect on what I said to begin this conversation, which was that when I first got into Myanmar, I talked to my predecessor, who was, who was an American and had uh, actually British, British American, but had been in a position of training teachers and told me flat out that the courses that we usually run to train teachers uh, in other places in the world, it cannot it cannot work here because the types of participants that are coming on this course simply don't have the resources to be able to be held to those standards. And, you know, uh, excuse my language, but I thought that was complete bullshit. And I felt that if that's true, I want to know that's true, not by some other white person telling me that, but by me trying the same course that I run anywhere else and trying as hard as I can and then seeing from my own experience after several times, it just doesn't work. I don't want to buy it any other way. And and if I have to find another way to reach those goals, so if the goals remain the same, but the way that we're going to try to work with local conditions to be able to uh, reach those same goals, but just do it by better understanding and respective and being interested and being curious and sensitive about local context, let's see if that will work. And it absolutely did. I mean, on that course, the the, the work and, and courses that followed, the work that came out from the participants was every bit at a level that I'd seen anywhere with, with participants in the world. And when you're talking, the anecdote that comes to mind, when people aren't curious, they do the same, or when they're not sensitive, they do the same thing that they've done in other countries. And when it doesn't work, they don't necessarily have the curiosity or the self-reflection to think about why it's not working. And where I'm going with this is I have a specific example in mind. I remember a training session that one one trainer who was like, you know, flown in from New York or something to meet with some of the young leaders in Myanmar to give some kind of specialized training. At one point in the training, he was trying to talk about like the ubiquitous of brands and capitalism around the world. I don't remember what his point was, but his uh, metaphor was Coca-Cola. And he was talking about how Coca-Cola was everywhere and it was something that was produced anywhere and you could you could buy and pick it up everywhere you went. And it was this metaphor he was trying to explain. And what he didn't understand was at that point, Myanmar was one of the only countries in the world that didn't have a Coca-Cola bottling plant. Coke was available in Myanmar, but it was only available through imports from Thailand. And so at that time, not today, but at that time, Coca-Cola was kind of like a, an upper-class, expensive beverage that you didn't have very often, you only had for special occasions, and it was kind of the opposite of a product that was just anywhere at any time that you wanted to get. And so his whole training was around this notion of something that would work in almost every, every other country and culture, but it didn't work there. And he wasn't curious enough or introspective enough to be able to go and investigate you know what why the things that were working elsewhere wasn't working here and instead was passing that off to you know the participants not being able to necessarily understand what it was he was trying to to say or to get across and you know basically it was on them instead of realizing that uh he just needed to modify and adjust what he was trying to do to get them there in a different way and so going back to 
what you're experiencing in journalism and some of the uh, the journal the foreign journalists that come and that are uh, trying to tell the story of your country and trying to share that with an international audience, I kind of want to flip the question. And we're talking so much about these foreign journalists that have bigger names or work for bigger networks. What about the young um, and maybe not so young Burmese journalists? What about the Burmese journalists saying, I said young because that's kind of on my mind with this current coup is that we're seeing this extraordinary crop of mainly young journalists that are really getting their chance to show their stuff and tell their story and be on the scene. But of course, journalism has been a field in Myanmar for many, many years and goes back, you know, even centuries. And so uh, according to your knowledge of what you're seeing, uh, not just about being a fixer for foreigners coming in, but what you've been seeing now and in the past several years from the Burmese journalists on the scenes, what, what do you find with them? What kind of story are they telling? How is that different? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was, um, I would say they're incredible, especially in the coup time and they, the way they re- report and they are risking their life because they're in the front line and going out there. And also, especially the people in the ethnic states or in different states and regions where there are very few, um, you know, very few medias are, um, can reach out to like even the local bit agency cannot reach out to every state and region in the country. So the the journalists are really doing you know they the they yeah they are young or maybe they're my age. So they are they're doing their they're doing their best and it's incredible in a way for now. Like they're I like I would say here's a there, there's um what you call like the divisions. Um, so we started developing the medias in 2007, 2008, but it was very few private media and we barely know only like one or two of them. But before that, when we say the media is more like the entertainment or interviewing the celebrities and everything, not the news media. So the news media started developing around 2007, 2008, but it's it became more around the 2009, 2010. And so since then, there are lots of people, lots of young people curious about politics and they, they joined to the uh, journalism and the, the, they reported. But, you know, the journalism in the, in the country, those journalists who are not, when they started it, they're not necessarily coming from the, not, they, when they started, it wasn't that, oh, I want to be a journalist. I think there will be very few people who um, who became a journalist because they wanted to. It's more like they were interested in most people who became a journalist coming from the activist background, which means they're interested in the country's affairs. So they are, so they, there were very limited choices for us to, um, to access to those, to the resources out there. And so there are very, very few career for the people that time. So you cannot do the politics or you cannot really, there very few political science causes, causes and everything. Plus the situation of the journalist itself living in the third world country with the lots of crisis. We are not the outsider in every crisis. We are part of the, part of the crisis. So we, we are the, what's it called? We are the, character ourselves in our story so you cannot differentiate between the the activisms versus the journalisms in a way even though 
people are trying to be very professional and people are trying to be ethical and and principle. But around the time since the Rohingya, even though the media is developed, the way they report about the Rohingya's crisis was um, was not um, quite principle. They were very. We noticed they were biased. And the, there were lots of misinformation regarding the local media reporting about the Rohingyas issues, and they undermine the suffering of the Rohingyas people and the way they, the language they use, and everything. So that time, it was a bit, a bit. Um, I I would say they were really good at the general political reporting, but in terms of the Rohingyas reporting, their quality is really the journalism standard is really questionable. And but now, like with after the coup, the situation has changed. I think they're more. They're trying to be more ethical, and they're trying to be. Uh, I noticed the news reporting are getting better after the after the coup, and I saw the effort of the local journalists in the in verifying and the also like writing the news to be more. Uh, yet yeah, more. Representing, and I think that's because they saw more responsibility in themselves. Why the other gen very limited media access to certain places. So many journalists started seeing their role, and they 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 more value their role more than ever. And they they are they 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 are more like how do you say like they're trying to develop their skill set since the coup. And it's super brave that they are working on the ground and. They can be in the reporting in the coup as a local journalist. It's really, it's really challenging because you can be you can be shot dead at the spot if you are covering the protest, and and you can be arrested at home or you can be arrested with because you have camera, and and so it's really tricky and it's really risky for them. And they lost not many people lost their job, the local journalists. Because the 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 regime's trying to shut down the 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 media company, so many people lost their job. The, it, it is really challenging for the journalists to continue their work under the coup because they can be it, they can be arrested, they can be beaten, and lots of things could happen to them. So so yeah, it's they are they are super brave in covering the news, especially the local journalists, because without them, we wouldn't be able to. No, even like for us working for the international media, we cannot go to every places. We am more. I am my. I myself is a desk reporter, so I have to rely a lot on the, on the local reporters, and they are the starting point. And without them, we wouldn't know. And especially with the internet shut down in different places, it's it's really difficult to get the information. So the local media are trying really really hard, and they have done a great job in. Getting a story out and risking their life, and very few people would know their effort. And when I say local people and the local journalists, that also includes the local journalists working for the local media and the local journalists working for the international media. Like people like us working for the international media, our names are not credited, even though the story may be viral or like loved by everyone, but. People don't know that we existed because for the security reason we cannot put our name um, credited, and and very few people know that we we exist. <laughs> we don't exist actually. So 
but we have been trying to produce the news about the country. Um, so local journalists here are, are spending their own money reporting for their own country and trying to make sure their news is on the on the platform. Mm, right. I see. I want to go back to something you said just a bit ago where you mentioned that you found that the reporting of many local reporters around uh, the Rohingya crisis was not up to standard. Can you share a bit more why you think there were so many problems at that time in accurate reporting? Yeah. Um, so it was, one is the SS. They, if you, sometimes the, the horrible and the brutality of the military, you wouldn't believe until you see them. And so one thing the local journalists, they cannot, why they cannot address would be the SS. Because you go to Rakhine, it cost, it, you need lots of money and you have to fly and then, and then different procedures and everything. So most of the local media, they don't have that kind of money to send a journalist to, to do an in-depth story. So maybe one main thing I would say is the, is the access, the lack of access to them. And as opposed to the international media, they cannot spend so much money on the, on, 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 on the trip. And also they may not be able to hire a local translator and a fixer. So that's one thing. The other thing is that this is the, as I said, the journalism in Myanmar is, in, it's, it's intertwined with the, with the activists. And, and so they, people in Myanmar, they may be politically, um, uh, they may be politically liberal, but we are brainwashed for forever. Like since our, since we grew up, we are brainwashed by the by the regimes, and the regime is famous for the, the previous military dictatorship. is known as known it's known as a really good at divide and rule. So that was the brainwash mechanism that they use of us and them. So they always trying to make the Rohingyas as the we never learn about Rohingyas or anything in our textbook. But around two thousand twelve, when the first um, the case happened then then they started talking about you know rohingyas are outside people there's no rohingyas only like bengali and people who are trying to manipulate the politics are trying to you know destroy the countries and everything so that's like we are brainwashed for for decades and and so we have a limited information and limited access and so it it's it's always happened right when you when the state sponsor um, divisions of the ethnics and it's it's easier for people to for a long time it's easier to people to believe that these people don't belong to us and especially the country was in transition so anything they don't want and people were really worried that the transition from democracy would be shifted that time I mean, you know transition from democracy would be shifted and getting back into the hands of the hands of the military so their idea is just to as just to push the country to um, another, you know, to a better, to, to a place where the military cannot um, control over. So for them, the main goal is to have a transition in a state of democracy, which is free from the military. So they are pushing for it. And the journalists that journalists are also, I, my analysis is that the journalists are also like coming from the activism background. And so they want to push the country to that goal, like to have a get out of the military. So for them, anything 
that challenge, that effort seem as a they they seem as some they seem as the not genuine effort. So maybe that's why they cannot they cannot see beyond the uh, ethnicities and the citizenship uh, boundary. So when they approach the Rohingyas issue, but I would say the main thing is the access that they don't have finance, financial power, and other resources to get to the get to the areas to understand the suffering of the Rohingyas, or and to to realize if it is true. Right, right. And you mentioned that during this current crisis that you're seeing an improvement on the part of local journalists, and yet you're also working with a number of international journalists, and I'm sure even the ones you're not working with, you're reading and following their materials. So what are you finding as the differences between how things are being reported and shared in-country and how they're being shared out-of-country to foreigners? I think the daily life is missing. It's not. It's it's missing not only in the international media, also in the local media. The daily life of the people and the life, uh, the the terror and the insecurity that we face in the daily life, those things are missing. Um, the way you know, it's we will see killings and everything that they you will see ki- killings and what's it called like. Other, you know, other brutalities and everything you will see it in the in the news. But the amount that we are facing, it's it's far more than that. Like far more than the than what is written in the news or what is shown in the news. It was daily life um, struggle, and we have and and yeah, and the story about our life that, like, you know, not. We're not just crying. We're not. We're not. We 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 have. How do you say like um? How, how do I put it? Like okay, we we have that. Yeah, horrible things happen. At the same time, we have, uh, we have life, which means like people stay go. Would people stay going to the shopping centers and people stay going to the, uh, going to the bars or like people still going to the, uh, going out on the streets and. They they are trying to run their normal life, even though it's not normal. There is a new normal happening in in Myanmar, and doesn't mean that these people are happy with what is going on. But it's a way of it's it's a way of like healing their mind, and there are also like criticisms towards those people who could um, trying to maintain their normal life. And so there's a there's a criticism towards them as as if they have no, you know, sympathies towards the people who die in the sector. But but you know, like the the journalists, let's say when they do the those people who are going to those bar in the sector, they are also like people who reported in the daytime in battlefields and risk their life. The and then at the end of the day, they go to the bar or the protester who protests and who were in the in the front line and. And defending the security forces with the life round with the fire firecrackers, they would come and to those places, and it's a way of survival, surviving, and and those kind of normal life we may not see it in the in in the news because the way the news work whenever there's a crisis is more about the bad things and or they want to highlight how bad the situation is, but. But we also have other life behind the scene. So, 
So I think that one is missing. But that doesn't mean we undermine. That doesn't mean the horrible, the horrible things happen to us is, it's not as bad as it seems in the media. It's it's worse than it seems in the media. But still, people are tr- trying to find a way to survive. Right. And that's what's so interesting about your saying is you're actually the two things, two examples you're giving is that on one hand, things are actually worse than are being reported. But on the other hand, even though things are worse than than we're reading in the news, people are trying to have some semblance of normality in a greater terror than we're even imagining that's being reported. So that's quite a contrast and juxtaposition to hold in your mind if you're not in the country and you're trying to understand how things actually feel. Yeah, I have to, um, you know, when I, when if I talk to my friends abroad, you know, sometimes they come and cry and they were like, I'm so, my friend, Burmese friends were abroad and they were worried about Myanmar and she, one of my friends, like, she cannot have life since, uh, since the coup. Like, she doesn't go out and she doesn't do the shopping anymore. She doesn't cook uh, for herself and she cannot concentrate on her on her studies and anything because I think it's overwhelmed by the by the incidents happenings in the incident happening in the country and whatever she hear or whatever she reads, whatever she consume is the is a negative things happening. And so she thought that things were really bad and and so like she was so yeah, things were really bad and she was she couldn't really she was crying almost all the time and she couldn't have life and she feel guilty. So people who are outside has that kind of guilt. Like if they're if you're away from home and if you cannot witness the situation with your eyes, you try and and if you own if you have to picture things through the media and things are you tend to see things worse than the reality. The reality is worse, but not in a way that the um, that people who are not there imagine. Right. So on one hand, you talk about how there's a normalcy that's happening through this that people that are not in Myanmar don't experience. And by the way, I'm just like your friend. I'm also having a hard time going out and cooking and having any sense of normalcy before the coup, even though I'm not there. Uh, but on the other hand, you mentioned that things are actually worse than what we're reading and how it's being reported. So you've described a bit how this normalcy is trying to take place. Can you share a bit of detail about how the terror is actually worse than what we're reading? Because from what we're reading, it's already pretty bad. Yeah. Um, what We're not safe at our, at home. Like. You can arrest your. You never know when your doors will be broken into, and you know, like here's how we live. Like you know, I every night before after eight p.m. I'm scared for no reason. I something if 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 the dark comes, I feel like something's gonna happen, and are they going to arrest me or anybody got arrested or with that fears that we live. And then they, we never know. You never know when they're going to break into your home. So I'm not living at my homes and I'm living at a, another safe place. And the, you know, every night before I go to bed, I have to hide my phone 
into different places, like in my in I I hide it in my underwear boxes because the soldiers are superstitious and they don't want to touch on the woman's underwear. So I usually put hide my phones in those underwear so that they don't touch. Uh, even if they breaks into my 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 room, my place, and then they search for it, I don't want them to find my phone. So every night and. And also, like, there are different many nights where we have to turn off the light and stay in the dark for hours or if the soldiers are coming into the street. And sometimes even in the daytime, when they walk past and when they're in the neighborhood, we have to hide in the home, turn off the light and, and cover our windows with everything so that they don't know that there are people inside because you don't, they can come into your home and take you to take you for pottering or they can arrest you or they can do anything they can break um, they can destroy your properties for no reason so we are scared and you can be arrested just to stay inside home and you can be shot to death or you can get injured staying inside home because they may randomly go into the neighborhood and they may randomly shoot at home and so we can be targeted shoot at home with the real guns or sometimes with the slingshot for no reason they just come and they just want to scare people and even going from place to place um it's um you know like from a quarter blocks we have to leave the phone at home or we have to prepare um how to get out because we don't want to get caught on the way and if we go to one place we go home quick because we don't want to be stopped on the way and anything could happen because we never know when they're going to come and my situation is that now like they also use the the home cars to arrest people or to hit people and and so whenever i got off the car I don't trust anyone, even the normal car, I don't trust. And and then even the normal people, if they just stare at me for no reason, I thought, is that is that person an informer? And they, are they, why, why is that person watching me? And are they the trying to trace me? Or lots of fears. I like fear is everywhere in every um, part of our life that you cannot explain it in the in the media, it the fear is all. You live in fear, not and you feel helpless because you cannot help. If your friends tell you something's happened to your home, or if your neighbor tell, you cannot help. But you also cannot ask for help. It's really the helpless situation of knowing that you we can get killed at any time for no reason, and we can get arrested at any time for no reason so it's we cannot have a the for me i also cannot put the money in the bank because we never know when the banks will be bankrupted or the the regime's going to rob our money and the atm even from the atm you have to queue up really long queue and you own just for two hundred dollars worth of money and if you keep cash in your hands, you're, you're, you have to be afraid that if they break in for guest registrations or whatever reason, and they can steal those money. So we have to hide money in our homes as well. So it's not safe. The feeling, I cannot explain the feeling of a lack of safety and live in fear every single moment. 
it's it's the most difficult thing. There is an unknown fear that we have, and that we have to live. Even though we will be happy at one moment, you never know. So, so I, you know, people abroad, like my friends abroad, when she called me when she was worried and she doesn't have life, I was telling, I was comforting her that. Oh, you know, don't worry. You know, we we have our own life. I was having my wine. I was having wine, and I was having some snack that night when I and I was about to watch movie when I talked to her, and I was comforting her to have her own life. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that we have, which means I have my own life. I can have wine and have some chill time. But it doesn't mean that I am safe or I am in a better position because. In any seconds, they're gonna break into your door, and they can take you from home, or they can kill you, or they can do anything to you. And there's no law, and everything they say is the law. So imagine how bad it would be for the people who are not as privileged as I am, living in a tent. Right. So you talk about being privileged in ways that others are not. Who are those people that don't have that sense of privilege that you have? Why are they more vulnerable? Um, um, for, uh, let's say for me, like I'm, I'm from the certain socioeconomic status by now uh, because of my work and and I can spend more money and I I have my own business and everything. So so I have um, I'm, I'm better off in a way. So I I'm in a safe houses and but for the people, especially in the in the you know the art. The suburban areas, the factory workers, they they live on the squatters. Like the the squatters is that they don't own the home and they're moving around and they they are living in the in the places where they in the middle of the dirty water, dirty drain. They build their houses and the houses are overlap in in the crowded places and their incomes are um, less than one dollar a day or around one dollar a day. So there are people like that and the people who whose home they attend and and they don't have four uh, they don't have full world walls like they only they may only have three walls in their homes and these people are vulnerable and and these people who are you know they're in the suburban area they're factory workers and they are they're from the lower socioeconomic status and the soldiers tend to um Tend, tend to crack down more on these people because they don't have it's more like if if rich or some powerful people die they have a lot of people to say share the condolences to but these people they're not people living in those areas they're more vulnerable because they don't have resources and and soldiers don't even treat them as human beings and they can kill them all. So it's so that that's one group of people. And also people in the in the in this area where the military did the airstrikes, they're running from their homes and they don't really have that kind of privilege that I have. But I'm telling the extreme um, difference, but there are other people who are less privileged than I am, who may not be even the local journalist. They may not have as much income as I am, I have, so they don't have that kind of privilege that I have. Even though they are also the journalist, 
but the people in the in the factory areas and people in a lower socioeconomic status they are more they are more vulnerable and they have been more targeted by the by the regime forces. I guess that wouldn't be so surprising because what we've seen of the military is that many of them are just bullies at heart and bullies always like to go after the most vulnerable where they're going to be the least exposed and have the least pushback. And so that's just kind of fitting into that whole narrative. Uh, I do want to go back to what you said a bit ago regarding your sense of fear. And I'm just so sorry to hear that. I you really do give quite a vivid description, which I think is important for our listeners to understand at a human level beyond just the stories of what it actually feels like, what it is actually like to live there. And I want to go a little deeper into your description of how that fear takes hold. It sounds like it can come at any time of the day for any reason, for something you see or don't see or imagine or is really there. But you mentioned how after 8 p.m., I think it was, it comes on much more strongly. And I just want to know more about the nature that that fear takes. Like what, how does it manifest? Is it in the stomach? Is it, does, does it cause nightmares? Or is one able, one able to sleep? Does one have headaches? Is it, uh, is it a, a fast heartbeat? So like physically and mentally, emotionally, et cetera, how is that fear actually manifesting for you? Um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was because we, I said 8 PM because 8 PM is a curfew time. So eight to uh, 4 p.m. is a curfew time. And so we by 7 p.m. we have to be rushed home because we don't want to get caught on the way or you, you never know what could happen on the street if you go home late. And and so all the stores and everything is closed by them. So after 8 p.m., people at 8 p.m., people started banging pots and pans. They're still doing since the beginning. And amidst all the crackdown, that's the only resistance that people can show, and 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 so they they we still do that. So after the banging pots and pans, it was more like a silence, and then they usually arrest people around midnight, and so from midnight to four a.m. it was like a really long time. And at the beginning, that in February when the night terror happened, we couldn't even sleep for days. And I couldn't sleep for two weeks, like properly. I only slept for, um, I only slept for four hours a night, uh, for two weeks. And at the beginning of the coup, not knowing when they're gonna knock on your door, and and by when we see the light in the daytime, it's some kind of hope. Even though you know things, bad things could still happen, but just to see the light itself, it's um. It's some kind of hope and it's some kind of security that you feel. So the feeling is that, that you know, the, my heart is a, a heavy heart. And also, like, um, there is a mixture of feeling of that fear. You're, you have that unknown fear, but at the same time, you have that, that range that you... We hate them, and in our, I hate them in our like you know, from our from my bone marrow, and I hate them because I cannot do anything to them, and and seeing what other people are suffering, there's nothing I can do, 
and to help others. So that feeling, it's just like some kind of big ball inside my chest, between my chest and the neck. And, and it was almost getting out of the mouth. And, and also in time of the nightmare, like mm. I got the nightmares, like I got arrested or I got killed or I was running and hiding things um, every couple of nights. And I, I would dream about that. And because even though we sleep, it's not actually the mind is not actually sleeping. In the morning, I woke up with the tense muscle and the, I don't feel like fresh. Something is a bit dull in a way um, that you don't want to, you don't have much energies to do anything because you're overwhelmed by the fear and and also like anger, you're you're angry for things that you cannot really do, just because they have weapons and we have to hide it. It it's um there's a really difficult feeling, and that fear can you know, they, it can cloud everything, every moment of our life. Because it's not normal, and we don't have a normal life anymore. Even though we live, try we try to live like normal, there is no more normal life. We see the sunset, we want to take the photos and enjoy it, but we cannot because they can arrest you with a camera on the street. And whatever you do, even like going to the one crazy things, is that one time I went, I slept over at my friend's place, and then in the morning we. We went out for the breakfast, and there is a place where the we have to pass the place where the the security forces were were based, and then and then we, I was wearing um because I was sleeping over, so I was wearing my normal clothes, which is not the home clothes, and I was having the my my little bags, little handbag, which is the uh in the the orange color, the orange color raincoat. Like a raincoat, it's a waterproof bag, but it's mostly for the protester. So we was we were afraid to my friends and I were afraid to take that bag because they can grab you on the way, thinking that you can be a you can be a protester. So we hide that we hide that waterproof handbags into one of the pockets. We because we were walking, it's it's just like a few miles away from home. It's just two. It's a two blocks away. From that, from the home to get the breakfast, but we are also trying to make sure the way we wear doesn't look like we are about to protest. So we trying to wear like a wear like a home clothes, and whenever we go out, we trying to dress in home clothing so that if something if they stop us, we can say we are just buying something here and there. And and so so that morning we went out for the breakfast and we were very careful about what we wear and 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 if we wear a little nice we we took off because we don't want them to mistaken us with the uh, with the protester so we went to the we went to the breakfast place and then we were scared that they're gonna come and arrest us because a few days before that uh, a few days before that there were people who were having breakfast at a tea shop and they got a, they got taken from the shop for no reason like the the security the soldier came into the 
the tea shop and arrested the wait 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 the wait um arrested the servers and the people who are eating. They only let go of the older, really old people, but everyone got to jail for like a week or something. So we were scared that could happen to us. And so even having the breakfast, we were like looking back because we never know when they're going to come. And we have to hide our phone. I, I hide my phone everywhere I go and I have different phone. And it just, it just extra work. And yeah, that, that's the situation. You know, even going out for breakfast, you have to be careful what kinds of clothes that you wear and what color of the clothes you wear and what what is the things that you carry. You don't feel safe at all. That's the daily life that we are having. And we cannot sit at a, at a place for a long time because you never know. They will come with the car and they can take you all. And if you're walking and they can hit you with a car, like on the other day, we saw the video that they hit a, mo- a bicycle with, a car- with their military vehicle and they arrested that person. He was just bicycling on the, on the road, on the public road. It's, it's crazy. Um, it's super crazy to see all this thing. It's more than, it's beyond words to express what it's like to live under this regime. They're just stupid and cruel and nasty. Mm, right. So when you talk about not being able to sleep for a couple of weeks or about just the levels of fear and anger that you're going through faced with this kind of reality, you've now been living in this reality for, at the time we're recording this, at least for you know about 10 weeks or so. And so have you developed any strategies for dealing with these really difficult emotions, probably to the, this level of intensity and extent you've never experienced before in your life, but are now a daily occurrence throughout the day? When these were first coming and they were overwhelming, but as they've continued, is there any strategies you've been able to develop mentally uh, physically, emotionally, any other way, spiritually even, that has helped you to uh, to deal with some of these difficulties uh, better well, now than none. you were dealing with initially? I got my thick wall back. As a human rights doc- researcher, in my work, in my five years experience, I would go to the complex setting and I listen to the first-hand accounts of the people who whose family got killed or harmed by the military. Um, so I'm, I'm quite used to this kind of um, brutality. So that, those days, I, I developed the, the thick wall, a thick emotion wall. So I see things as a profession and I listen, but I don't feel it anymore. So I got it. But then that wall was broken when I studied abroad because I was away from home and I don't need to associate with this. So the the wall was when the wall was broken. It was really horrible for me to go through the emotional processing. But now I got that wall back, especially after the after the fourteen. Yeah, uh, no, yeah, on on the fourteenth of March. That's when lots of people got killed, and since then I got that that thick wall back. So I'm quite numb to this situation even though I live in fear but I'm quite numb to general situations sometimes I don't even 
feel it anymore. I was like, okay, let it go. Just if they arrest me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. And if they kill me, I'm gonna get killed. That's it. I will fight until my last breath. But I'm not going to. Instead of living under them, I would rather die, and not, not feeling the fears anymore. I don't. I don't. I don't like the feeling of get, getting fear. I hate fear, and I don't want it. So instead of living like this, I would rather. You know, I would rather let it go. And as far as I can protect the. Information that I carry, and as far as I can protect the safety of the people who are working with me or who have shared the information with me, and or my friends and my family, I don't really care about myself. I don't. It's such a. It's like living in hell. You know, you don't feel free, and every morning when you wake up, you wish that this is just a dream, and everything's. Should be over. That's what I wish for. And because I'm losing my friends, many of my friends are already gone. They are going to the jungle to get the to join the armed forces. And many of my friends got arrested, and and people got killed. But I don't know when I will be the next, or my loved one, or people who I know who I care will be the next. You never know. And. And so I believe I believe that you know the strategy that I would develop is that I believe that we will win because we deserve better, and we definitely will win. But what I'm not sure is who will survive, and how many of of us will survive to witness the victory. I may not be there、um, to see the victory, and or even if I see there, many of I many of my friends might not. So, so that's the so that's the future future waiting ahead of us. I'm just continue with one hope that we will win, but also it's scary that how how things are gonna unfold in the in the future, and I don't know who will survive to witness the victory. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That those are those are really heavy words, and you know, I'm I'm emotional hearing that as well. With how many friends I have there, and, and knowing you, and knowing the terror that people are under, and that just really brings home how、um, you know what people are going through and what what they're striving for, and you know when those of us are. Here, hearing those words,、um, you know, it's hard to know how to respond. It's um, it's just a feeling of such helplessness and um, and anger and sorrow, and、uh, you know, it, it's just I don't know what to say except it's it's hard to know how to respond, and that you have a lot of people outside of your country right now that are living in a place of safety and freedom, but that are using. All of their time and resources to be able to help you in any way that we can. Yeah, I really appreciate that, and I had a chance to leave the country. Actually, I got, I got visa. I got the, I got the U.S. visa, and also I got the Thai visa. But I, 
I decided to stay because I cannot carry that survival guilt. And plus, the, you know, I want to be together. I may not be able to help any. I decided to leave many times. I thought about leaving, but I feel like, you know, I talked to my friend and my, my, me being here may not be helpful at all, but me being here is like, it's some kind of hope and solidarity. And so, so people don't leave with the reasons, right? Because leaving, it's, it will wrong signal the, my friends and my comrade that, oh, she's, she is doubting about our victory. Is that why she left? And I don't want to give that wrong signal into them. That's why I continue staying as long as I can. Um, being a journalist and it, it, it's we I and also working with the activists and I come in, I myself coming from the activism background and I'm working with this helping with the strike committee. I'm has a I have a really high risk, but still like we continue staying. People here, other people also there are people who got a chance to leave the country, but they decided to stay. I'm not saying those people that those people who are leaving. I'm not saying anything bad about them because I'm. I think anyone should survive. Like you know, surviving itself is a victory for me by now. Because even if they cannot kill us all, so so if any one of us survive, whether inside the country or outside, this is our victory. So I count the victory with the survival. So we survive, and and even if one person left, that's our victory, because that person will continue the fight. And and so like you know, there are people who are who who are doing in any possible way they can um, to help the situation improve. Um, I really appreciate everyone, and I really value the effort of each and every one, whether they are inside or outside the country or wherever they are. We are all in this together. And I know that we are fighting in in any possible way we are. And we our fate is in our hands and we know that we have to we really appreciate the support from the international people or people other everywhere, but we understand that the fight is um our fight and the fate is in our hands given that the international structures and the UN structures with the bureaucratic procedure it won't very little help that they can give other than the condemnations or put in sanction and and yeah as I as somebody who understand about how the human rights structure works global human rights structure works I don't have much um, hope on them that they're gonna bring some changes to us. You know, the war has always, not the people, I mean the UN and the governmental structure, has always failed in crisis, in the mass atrocities. They only say, they only say never again, but they did not do any, they didn't do any potential measure to stop them. So they fail in every mass atrocities. They fail for Rohingyas and they also fail for 
the crisis and everything. So I don't have much hope on them unless they change. There is a structural issues there, and so um, I really appreciate the effort everyone put in making the situation better. But but yeah, we have to rely on our result, and the fate is in our hands. And so for the international audience who is listening to this and who wants to help as they can, what words would you have for them? How can they help in a way that would be needed well, at the moment, for what your we people need in your country the, now? At least for me, it's the hope and solidarity. At least um, knowing that people don't forget us. This is what happened with it. Lots of, uh, you know, lots of local people. Um, people, whenever the international media come, like when during the CNN trip, you will you may see, um, it's it's all about hope. So hope is the only one that has driven us. And so rather than the practical help, and the I don't know what the practical help that the international community can do without changing the structure. Um, so um, and so yeah, like. Uh, sharing information about us and and like like standing with us solidarity and the hope would be the only thing that would be they they are the they are the things that would be helpful for us because that will help us continue don't uh, you know uh, don't treat our suffering or our news as some kind of you know, breakfast table reading. Just, just continue sharing too, because at the, at least that we can do. And I want our situation to be heard by by people. I don't want this to die out, like and and gone after another big incidents happen. We don't want it to faded it away. We don't want our suffering to be faded it away, because we are. We are actual human being, and yeah, we need that kind of support. Yeah, like solidarity with us and continuing um, supporting us. Hmm. I'm glad you mentioned the visit by CNN. This was Clarissa Ward who came because that was a question I wanted to get at you with. There's some different views about her visit and uh, her reporting. There are definitely some people who are quite delighted, a lot of Burmese who are quite delighted that you had such a major network that was coming there to report uh, to many more people and try to bring access to the Western world as to what was happening. There were also some comments made by different CNN reporters and Clarissa Ward herself that many in-country and out-of-country as well, like myself, were pretty dismayed at in terms of uh, referencing that the journalism that they were doing was somehow groundbreaking in a way that was a bit offensive and dismissive for all of the great local journalism that has been going on for so long. And even Clarissa Ward herself made a somewhat controversial statement that the, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm paraphrasing, but uh, something to the extent that 
the Burmese people were loving and appreciating uh, everything she had been doing on their behalf, but that white Western males were critical of her, which uh, itself was quite offensive to uh, how many uh, young Burmese and female journalists there were that had been critical from the start. And a number of tweets came in response to that, joking that they were really white males in America in disguise <laughs> after all this time. But in any case, I'm curious what your take on that visit is, on Clarissa Ward of CNN coming, uh, the coverage that she did, the commentary kind of around before and after what that visit was. Uh, how do you feel about that whole interaction? Um, well, I'm one of the person who was critical of her visit and the way they use the language, like, you know, oh, I'm the, you know, she's the very first one. Um, international journalist who is SSN and I'm critical of their lack of transparency on this trip like you know how they got invited and how they got the SS it was a red carpet setting it's more about the process how they how she carry out the in, interview like you know talking to the um, people on the street who uh, who can be taken after all but anyway, but this is like this is what we thought, and this is what a critical. I'm in general critical of the, of this kind of parachute journalism. But in the meantime, when I look at the people, lots of Burmese people, um, likes her visit because, as I said, it's her visit won't change anything, and and so like it's, so it I I I see it as a it's a hierarchy of knowledge and hierarchy of criticisms in the end it doesn't matter what i think it's matter what the what the people feel you know her reporting she should have been more i would say she have she should have been more reflected on her journey like even though the the reporting itself is problematic i think knowing seeing that people have people have having hope whether it is false or or real it will make them survive. So in that sense, CNN visit, visit is important and makes the movement, make people, you know, continue their fight. And then I want them to be more, um, more, preca- uh, more cautious with the situation in the next time when they go to any conflict sector, rather than don't, don't treat them as your source or your characters or some kind of materials in your report that treat people as human beings because they have put so much hope on you. And then you should take more, you, you need to take responsibility. I think that's a responsibility of, of the journalist. And they the way she sounds is not quite respectful to the local journalists who risk their life and reporting, like knowing that, oh, I'm the only one you know, who got it. It's quite arrogant tone, but she should be more careful like that in the future. Anything I did not know that, but like, you know, in my experience, when I work with one of the really, uh, you know, one bit agency and we want, I took them to the Rohingya's camp and then like they were, it was a video report and, and she was so sim- sympathetic in the, in the, in the microphone and in the camera and I was like okay this is happening and then you know the way the 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 tv journalist would say but then 
and she doesn't let the you know she doesn't like the Rohingya's kids coming to her because one of them was coughing. So she was like, oh please, and you know, can you move them and etc. So I was like, I have seen that kind of journalist. So I don't want any journalist to be like that because if they go to any places, people see you as a hope. It doesn't matter what we, uh, what we, what we think. Like you know, for for us, we are some kind of privilege, and we have at least having internet at home is a privilege now, and so we can discuss that that kind of thing of what should be and what it shouldn't be. But for the local people, it doesn't matter. It's only the hope that the if the any outsider come, it's a hope that they carry and they want to continue having that hope. And so for the outside people, reporter or anybody from the UN or anywhere and any places, they should be more careful. Uh they, they should be they should take more responsibility in respecting the local people, journalism or the white center um the white center journalism we are we are criticizing but at the same time um yeah we are, we are criticizing them for not respecting the the local people for criticizing them because they don't respect the uh you know the local people they they dis like the way they treat their local people it's more like lesser human being than these people the people may have that you know, savior mentality than anything. It is a problem for us, but for the people for now, I think it's the hope that they, they can carry and they will do anything they can to get that hope. So um, for me personally, I don't like her trip and her information doesn't have much information and she is doing a stunt that, oh, I am here in Myanmar, etc. And like, you know, like the treating the air tickets and anything, she could have been low profile and which I would do it if I were her. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And changing gears a little bit, I understand that you're also active in some of the strikes that are going on. Can you share a bit more about what you're doing there? Um, I wasn't go out myself because I am not, I'm more like just reporting doing the logistical support to the to the strike committees. So if they need the safe houses or if they need money and I, or other I'm more like a one-stop service for them. So they can call me and they can ask me. And so I can, I make it happen. Being a fixer, I have lots of connections and I know how to make things done. So, so when they call me and if they don't know where to find which, they call me and I, I help them with the, with the, with the things that they need. Like the, if they need the meeting space, I arrange the meeting space for them or, or yeah, other 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 things like many other things that, or if they need the supply, or if they need money, and I'm I trying to make it happen. Mm, right. So that sounds like it, that itself can be quite a hectic, high stakes, intense situation to have to have all these requests coming. That sometimes I imagine could literally be a matter of life and life and death, and then having to deliver on whatever request is coming at any minute, and then the next minute, uh, something else that needs to be delivered. So that that seems like it's a, that could be quite a bit to handle. Yeah, you have to respond quick because um, if they should not stay at one place for a long time, and when they ask for it, it's more like a, it's more like um, you have you you do the immediate response to them, and and also like sometimes they need money for in terms of the money because there is a problem with the money flow inside the country. 
um, they cannot wait for the money from the donation. Um, so I have to use my own money and to pay at friends before their money comes. So that things also involve in my in my work, or I take money from someone else and trying to um, switch the, um, the make the money flow internally. So that kind of process involved, or somebody needs a printer, so like A3 printer, so they need to print it from the one area to another, and and arrange that kind of thing, you know, like bringing how to get the because the one one time I brought the printer from the from Thindaya, which is more like a battle zone. It was two days after the Thindaya crackdown, and there was no internet access or anything. So we need to get the A3. One group wanted the A3 printer, so I have to do. I have to find an A3 printer in town, and so I got it. And that that A3 printer is coming from the area where uh, it was brutally cracked down two days before. So all the assets are closed. So I have to arrange that bringing the printer to the border of. Like Naya is still in Yangon. It's more like a suburban area, but the people there may not be able to come all the way to downtown area. So we have to make like an arrangement of like border area, suburban and the downtown area. We drop the printer off one place and then arrange to carry that printer to one area in downtown. So that kind of arrangement that I would do. Right, right. And it sounds like you are fitting into a role based on who you've been and what you've done for years past. And this is what we're seeing of everyone now, people that are coming from whatever their profession or their skill sets or their connections are, that that is how they're fitting into the best role that they can play here. Because obviously not everyone is meant to be on the front lines. Different people can be play. Uh, productive roles uh, in different places, depending on who they are. And you mentioned about funds and the difficulty of being able to get funds in and urgently give them to different people and activities that need them at that moment. And we should also mention that we that our platform is able to accept donations from anywhere outside of the country, and we are able to uh, to get it uh, inside. And so for those that are listening to Theory Speak and that would especially like to support her and the work that she's doing and the people that she's supporting, uh, we do encourage you to listen to uh, the end of our interview when we'll be the end of this episode, when we'll be uh, sharing a bit about how um, those donations can be given and make sure to earmark where you want it to go. And so you, people listening can do more than just listen. They can actually support and play a role in this difficult time. Uh, I do want to ask a question about safe houses because this is something that I think everyone has seen in movies or heard about in wartime or such. But uh, what a safe house actually is, what makes it safe, what it looks like, how you determine it and set it up. I think these are things that very few people, myself definitely has no real experience in. So can you share a bit about what a safe house actually is and how you go about setting up or determining um, a, a safe house existing and being available for people? 
Yeah. So, like, in, and living under the dictatorship, um, no place is safe. <laughs> Even one square feet of land is not safe. So there's no actual. It's technically the safe house, but not may not be safe. You can be arrested at any time. But anyway, so we have two kinds of safe houses. The one is the it's more like hop in place. When you, uh, you. You may register your home address somewhere, and then you need to leave. You need to um, abandon that place for your safety reason. But before you, but you still wants to go out and involve in the activities because you need to. Um, and for that, there are places like hop in places. They can go and stay, and then it's it's more like a temporary safe house. So they can go and stay and work there, and they and. Until to the to and they can still go in and out like maybe, uh, uh yeah, I, I heard I I heard the knocking so you can still go in and out and work in there and it's more like a temporary place. That's one kind of safe house and the other safe house that we say is that is when you need to hide your identity at all. So it may not it it will not have any internet or anything. But it will have somebody who will help you with the shoppings and etc. To that level, it's that you have to hide completely. You don't meet with anyone, and you don't talk to anyone, and you you talk to very few people, and you don't you have a really um, you you don't go out at all at this stage. So for most for now, most of the safe safe houses for the activists are the. Uh, the hop in places they will go there temporarily until they find another safe place or until until they can um, operate their their work they will go to that hop in places and there we have to make sure it's uh, there we have to make there many available once one safe house is exposed we cannot use it again we have to find the another one and and so that's a tricky part because in Myanmar when we when we rent the house, we have to pay. We have to make a contract for at least six months or a year. So we need to make sure we have enough money to pay for the safe houses. Sometimes people give give out their homes and they they agree to take the people in and stay with them. Or sometimes they sometimes people donate their homes, empty homes, to use as a safe house, like my mom did, and. And uh, sometimes we have to. Most of the time, we rent the place, and but we cannot make it empty because we have to. Before, if we just rent into the people, are gonna know that they these people are hiding. So we have to make sure there's somebody there and operate it as a normal home, so that people can go in. So there are lots of setting needed to for the safe houses, but we have a shortage of of safe houses because we need the safe houses for the journalists and safe houses for the activists and also safe houses for the CRPH, the the people working with the CRPH, the people who are helping the the government newly the parallel government, you know, the elected government. And so based on different types, we have to make sure um, Things are okay. So some some of the safe houses are just for the journalists. So we even if we have safe houses, we cannot give it to the journalists because this is oh, give it to the activists because this is we are saving it up for the journalists and and yeah and 
and and for activists they would need it right away and so we have to create the hub in places for a couple of nights for them to stay and then we find another place for them so nothing is really safe but it's more like unregistered place you know but there's a chance you can be targeted because the neighbor may know you are the you are you are the newcomers in the neighborhood and if there's any in, infiltrators in the neighborhood, we call them the land, which is a word to describe the informer to the authority. So they will check who are new to the to the neighborhood, and then they can inform to the security forces, and 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 the people in hiding can be arrested. So, so yeah, there are lots of different things involved, and we need money. And also these days, we have to register for the house registration. The idea is to to target the the these people who are in hiding, but also it is also targeting the young people. If they know if that house has a young person, they would go after that house. So being young in Myanmar at the moment, it's a risk. It's just because you're young, no no reason. Just because you you are under forty, if you between you if you if you're between sixteen and forty there's a chance that you can be arrested for no reason just because you are young. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's terrible. And that's so much pressure that everyone has to be on under those circumstances. Um, I also want to ask a little bit about your background in human rights, because I understand that you've also done considerable work with human rights organizations in Myanmar prior to the coup, which I imagine, given your research and your practice there and your probably your deeper study and understanding of the Tamara that probably comes into play now. So what have you, what, what is your background in human rights? What have you done and how is that informing what you're doing in the present moment? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I used to work with Human Rights Watch as a consultant for the Bama researcher. Um, so as part of my work, I went to the conflict zones and documenting the human rights abuses. So I'm, I'm, I am experienced in that, you know, documenting the how to document the human rights in the conflict setting. So, um, so like how to collect the, how to get the testimonies and how to make sure the information are solid and verifies and 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 how to collect the uh, the the information that would be fit for the um, for the human rights investigation. So that. That, that's what I have learned from the Human Rights Watch. And I also work with the other human rights organization. I, as a fixer or the researcher, I work with the you know, Holocaust Memorial Museums and, 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 and yeah, those kind of work. And I also work on the advocacy process project with the, with the, with the, mostly with the Human Rights Watch, but also with the other organization. So... So I have that, mostly I have the field experience of how to document the human rights abuses. And yeah, so that's more like my expertise. And I, so with that, I learned the patterns of violence that the military commit. And so the nature of them and what they usually do in the conflict setting. So what I see in the in the city, it's not something new because this is like this is what I have been hearing over the years in the in 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 the areas where I work. Um, but I have to, but the the difference is that before I only heard and I did not I 
very few cases I will see the video record or the photos records or the 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 or the the wit witness in myself. Where I would be, I would listen to the firsthand account of people and document it. But but this time is different because I can see the footages myself and I can I witness it myself and then photos and everything available. So this is the level. This is more like I actually see it with my with my eyes this time. So the knowledge and the documentation helped me with the systematic documenting of the abuses. Like when sometimes uh, the problem with the human rights documentation, the challenge I would say, the challenge with the human rights documentation is that in some in many cases the people suffer a lot. So they want to get the attention and they like to exaggerate the data or they like to fabricate the data just to get more attention. So we have to be, as a human rights researcher, you have to be very careful with the information that you receive. And sometimes people will say that, oh, they're shooting with the real guns or they are open fires and etc. So some questions involve, did you see it or did you hear it or did you hear somebody else told you and etc. So that kind of clarification. So sometimes people don't like it because it gives them impression that we don't trust their information. But for us, and sometimes people don't like to continue talking because they feel like, why are you asking this kind of deep questions? But for us, it's very important because this is, this, the, the accuracy and the and the detail, it's very important for us so that we can file the documentation. And if they go to the human rights court, human rights law are the, are the laws, like international humanitarian law are the laws. So it has a legal nature and you have to be specific and it has to be, um, it has to be you know, um, fit into the criteria. Otherwise, even though this is a horrible crime, you cannot take it accountable with the specific crime. So um, so that knowledge and the skill set that I have learned from Human Rights Watch and also I did my master in human rights um, helped me uh, document uh, the abuses that I can see myself. And also I can help other people who are documenting the, the, the human rights abuses. I can help them with sharing knowledge on how to collect the information to be as valid as they can so so those are things that is helpful because sometimes when for example like when we say in general word people say oh this is a war crime because they are going into the uh, the hospital or or they're they're shooting this and that but to fit into the category of the war crime it have to be a conflict setting and sometimes people will say now like people are saying the case in Bago is a genocide because lots of people die, but that's not even true because genocide is is very specific. And also to count it as a crime, we have to also know like whether it is a shooting at the people or like shooting shooting at somewhere else and it's at a collateral damage. So in our report we have to be very careful about the incident. So human rights documentation is very has to be very systematic and it has to be um, it needs verification with lots of people, and if we cannot and make the conclusion of the of the research, like okay, this is what people said, but there's that people said 
in our reporting, we would say like people said that you know that this place was they the security forces used the grenade, but there was no evidence that we found that the we don't see the shell or that we don't nobody actually saw it happen. So that kind of remark that we have to give, it doesn't mean that the information is wrong, but we want to be transparent and we want to be accurate as we can. So that's that's the knowledge and the skill set that I can apply in this documentation. So I can tell it to the, share the knowledge to the other people because I cannot document everything. So I can, I can ask them, uh, I can tell them. And also like arrests and the torture cases, it's also specific cases and we have to ask specific questions to get the detail as much as possible, the timeline and everything. So. Mm, right. And are you engaged in that work now? Are you um, reporting and documenting on these kind of human rights abuses uh, in, um, in this uh, since the coup? Uh, yes, I do. I'm occasionally working with the Human Rights Watch and the, also um, uh, working with the other court court cases, other people who uh, who I who hire me as a freelance. I'm a freelance um, freelance person, so I am I'm, I was hired by the other people for that kind of testimony worth of data collection. That's what I do. I also volunteer myself with one group and collecting the um, the debt toll. That's also what I'm doing. So some of them, some of them are uh, the paid work, and some of them are the are, are the volunteers' work that I do. Mm, that's a lot of things to hold. That can be quite heavy to have to go over that information and those details um, day by day. As you also, on a personal level, are also not safe. Yeah. No. It's um. Yeah. It's it's really. That's why I don't want to. I am. I'm carrying it, lots of information. So I. That that's why I got that fear. Oh, I'm gonna be arrested. Even if I got arrested, I don't mind. But the information that I carry, they, those are sensitive. So I just don't want to. Um. You know. Um. Um. Get caught with my phone. So even if I got caught, I want to caught red-handed, and then they will release me. So I'm also other thing that I do is I'm also uh, sending information to the double IWM, but everyone can do it. But for me is that I, I know which one would be, they would like it. And also I'm also like engaging with the soldier who are fleeing the military. So that information that I help um, I help them connect with the human rights organization if they want to testify or if they want to, if they need some help or if they want to talk to the media. So. Mm, right. And there's another thing that you do, according to my understanding as well, you are involved in a narrative analysis on social media. Can you tell a little more what that is? Mm-hmm. Well, I started it for the Rohingya's crisis. I, yeah, one Internationally, they see us as a um, uh, as a human rights and a humanitarian crisis. But in the country that time, it wasn't like that. It was they were very there was a huge um, there was a huge negative sentiments towards the Rohingyas and and thinking them as an enemy. And very few people w- were sympathized for Rohingya. So um, I am trying. So internationally, like that's that's the problem with the international media. Sometimes that 
the way they frame it is very much like uh, black and white. Okay, this person is good, the victims always, and this person is the perpetrator always. But the actual things are more complicated than this because because at the beginning when they started, even though it was a state-sponsored violence and both community in 2012, both communities suffer, both Rakhines and the Rohingyas suffer. But it turned out only one group got more attention, which is understandable because the level of the level and the intensity, level and the and the violence against the Rohingyas and the suffering of Rohingyas is it's nothing compared to any other ethnics in the country. So that's why international community and the, and the media would pay more attention to the Rohingyas. But the other problem with this is that they started making the Rakhine as the feelings and the bad people. And and now over time that caused the grievances amongst the people. So at the beginning both both of them want their attention and both of them want their suffering to be heard. But it over time the story became like, oh, Rakhine people are bad and then Rohingyas people are the victims. So even though they both are the victims of the system that is oppressed to both of them, but the levels are different devil are not the same and there's a computation of the victimhood between them and that cost but the the media media um you know like the media representation it's not it's not quite um it doesn't doesn't touch upon the nuances and also the complexities of the issues and over time that could more uh, that makes more divisions between the Rohingyas and the Rakhine community. And then that put more burden on the Rohingyas community. So when the, uh, so, so going the, for the, for the, that time. So that, that's why I decided to make the narrative because internationally, yeah. Oh my God, this is horrible. And how could people have a lack of sympathy or, but internally, they're being brainwashed and their idea is different. The way they see the crisis is different. And some of them, it doesn't really, it, it's, I, it's not just the, you know, uh, it's not just the Rohingyas issue itself. Like lots of role that Aung San Suu Kyi play in shaping that narrative or making people believe that Rohingyas are the outsiders and they don't belong and they're trying to, take the land and the role of the religious leaders trying to the monks and trying to divide and rules and also like the the way of the of the there's a islamophobic narrative which has existed in myanmar since after 9 11 so that all fed into the brainwash mechanisms of the people and people are being brainwashed not to you know uh Belief in the Rohingya suffering. So that's what I study on the Rohingya crisis. There is a parallel narrative, the international narrative, and the and the and the local narrative. So um, that's how I started looking at the social and most of the information, the discussion are happening on the social media and Facebook became everything in Myanmar. So I was analy- analyzing the narrative on the social media and how people understand to understand how people see the Rohingya's crisis and how are they so negative against the Rohingya's and how can they not sympathize a groups of people who whose life are at a dire situation. So that's what I analyze. And so it's not that they don't so that that's the that's my studies. That's what I did with the narrative. 
So now, like the narrative is also changing. Like on the social media, you may see like people are start people start apologizing, the the um, Rohingyas people. So internationally, they see Burmese people as racist people. But I I argue this is a different narrative that you know happening around that shapes the people's minds and the behavior, and so you can see. Now, like people have been changing the shift of the idea, which is more like they have never seen before. So now they saw it and they experienced it, and they can relate in a way how Rohingyas suffer. So, so yeah, that's why I'm I'm always rather than judging and rather than building a conclusion, I like to understand how people understand things. So that's how I study the narrative on the social media and mainly on. How the general public uh, uh, see the Rohingyas crisis? Mm, yeah, that's fascinating, and I think that is certainly an area that a lot of people are curious about. How they saw the issue, and how there was there was a certain kind of coldness, and uh, as you say, some kind of in- inhumane detachment from seeing these as fellow people suffering and so to be able to to go in and dig into how how were these views actually being formed and how were they being expressed uh and how has that been changing that's especially in an age of social media with the weight that that carries that that's that's just, just an incredibly important topic um i'm just kind of floored by how much you're doing how much you're holding how much you're involved in how far your knowledge and your activities extend and uh and knowing how much you do and taking the time to talk to all of us today and and what has become quite a long interview, I just really appreciate that you would take the time to share with this foreign audience and to just go over some brief overviews of the many things that you're involved in to help to educate us and bring this understanding. And before we close, is there anything that I didn't hit upon with any of my questions that you would like to take this time and this platform to be able to speak to what is probably primarily a foreign audience about uh, what has been happening, what is happening now um, that we didn't hit upon in this interview? Well, I want to, the last thing was that I, I want to share the nature of the Burmese people. Like they, it just, the, the, the nature is that they, in the crisis, and if they have a common enemy, they're quite united and they stood up against like in, injustice. So, um, so for them, at some point, the you know, about the Rohingyas, the way they perceive the Rohingyas issue is pretty ugly and it's really shameful. Um, um, and they did that, but it's um, because they were in a how do you say like you know they they did because they're being brainwashed. Like we have a close information the whole time. And then when the countries open up, we jump the whole IT age. We jump to the social media age. So already we are being we come from the dark. And then when we got the light, it was really bright light, and it's it's really hit our eyes. And which is more like that's the development of the social media, and that was a boom. And now we are getting towards the closed society, and 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 so like. We need one. Whenever you do the analysis or like trying to understand about Myanmar, it's um, it's they are complicated people, and plus they tend to they tend to respond. It 
they're really good at crisis responder. If in a normal situation, they may not be good, but like in a crisis situation, they, they, they could do their best. And like this, you know, like collective, when they have the common enemy, it, they had, they're quite united. So, so like, this is the, the reason why they have been so negative towards the certain issue is that they have been divided in rules and they're being brainwashed for many years and they have a lack of information and, and they did not very few, they did not see the wall. They did not, they, they, they couldn't see lots of, uh, lots of places. So that's why they are there. So in, so it's always good to engage with the local people rather than making a judgment anywhere, not only in Myanmar, rather than for the people who are privileged in the Western world, rather than making a judgment on for trying, one trying to understand one society, trying to, I would encourage the people to understand what is going on and to understand the nature and the culture of the people um, so that that can bring the best engagement of it. But in terms of the coup, please, help us in sharing our voices and support us and the and and talk to if you have friends who are in Myanmar call them and talk to them send postcards or anything they need that kind of hope and that that hope will continue to the end because life is horrible but hope is the only thing that they can you know that will guide them walk out of the of this darkness and i believe everything has come to an end and we're gonna win and but we just don't know when and we just don't know how or who will survive to see the victory but we will definitely win so support us Mm -hmm. thank you yeah those are wise and powerful words and you definitely have my support the support of many listeners that are coming on uh, as well and uh, just thank you so much and send you the best wishes your english has certainly improved since we last spoke and much more so uh that's been wonderful to check in and we'll continue continue to do so as this goes on and um thank you so much for just taking the time to be able to share all that you're doing and your perspective and inform us about what's going on there and please be safe Welcome. Thank you for having me here and give me a platform to share my voice. After today's discussion, it should be clear to everyone just how dire the situation is in Myanmar. We are doing our best to shine a light on the ongoing crisis, and we thank you for taking the time to listen. If you found today's talk of value, please consider passing it along to friends in your network. And because our nonprofit is now in a position to transfer funds directly to the protest movement, please also consider letting others know that there is now a way to give that supports the most vulnerable and to those who are especially impacted by this organized state terror. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are resisting the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Every cent goes immediately and directly to funding those local communities who need it most. Donations go to support such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, and the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies. Or if you prefer, you can earmark your donation to go directly to the guest you just heard on today's show. In order to facilitate this donation work, 
we have registered a new nonprofit called Better Burma for this express purpose. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is now directed to this fund. Alternatively, you can visit our new Better Burma website, which is betterburmaoneword.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at In all cases, that's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration. You've been listening to the Insight Myanmar podcast. We'd appreciate it very much if you could rate, review, and or share this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. You can also subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. If you can't find our feed on your podcast player, please just let us know and we'll ensure it can be offered there in the future. Also, make sure to check out our website for a list of our complete episodes, including additional texts, videos, and other information available at insightmyanmar.org. And I also invite you to take a look at our new nonprofit organization at betterburma.org. There was certainly a lot to talk about in this episode, and we'd like to encourage listeners to keep the discussion going. Make a post, request specific questions, and join in on discussions currently going on on the Insight Myanmar podcast Facebook group. You're also most welcome to follow our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts by the same name. If you're not on social media, feel free to message us directly at info at insightmyanmar.org. Or if you'd like to start up a discussion group on another platform, let us know and we can share that form here. Finally, we're open to suggestions about guests or topics for future episodes. So if you have someone or something in mind, please do be in touch. We would like to take this time to thank everyone who made this podcast possible. Currently, our team consists of two sound engineers, Mike Bink and Martin Combs. There's, of course, Zach Hessler, content collaborator and part-time co-host. Ken Pransky helps with editing. And a special Mongolian volunteer who is asked to remain anonymous does our social media templates. In light of the ongoing crisis in Myanmar, a number of volunteers have stepped in to lend a hand as well. And so we'd like to take this time to appreciate their effort in our time of need. And we're always on the lookout for more volunteers during this critical time. So if you'd like to contribute, definitely let us know. We'd also like to thank everyone who has assisted us in arranging for the guests we've interviewed so far. And of course, we send a big thank you to the guests themselves for agreeing to come on and share such personal, powerful stories. 
Finally, we're immensely grateful for the donors who made this entire thing possible. We want to remind our listeners that the opinions expressed by our guests are their own and don't necessarily reflect the host or other podcast contributors. Please also note that as we are mainly a volunteer team, we do not have the capacity to fact check our guest interviews. By virtue of being invited on our show, there's a trust that they will be truthful and not misrepresent themselves or others. If you have any concerns about the statements made on this or other shows, please contact us. This recording is the exclusive right of Insight Myanmar podcast and may not be used without the expressed written permission of the podcast owner, which includes video, audio, written transcripts, or excerpts of any episodes. Also not meant to be used for commercial purposes. On the other hand, we're very open to collaboration. So if you have a particular idea in mind for sharing any of our podcasts or podcast-related information, please feel free to contact us with your proposal. If you would like to support our mission, we welcome your contribution. During this time of crisis, all donations now go towards supporting the protest movement in Myanmar through our new nonprofit, Better Burma. You may give by searching Better Burma on PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, GoFundMe, and Patreon, as well as via credit card at betterburma.org donation. You can also give right on our Insight Myanmar website, as all donations given there are directed towards the same fund. And with that, we're off to work on the next show, so see you next episode. I'm a shimmy, 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 sh